So if you're new this morning, I want to give you just a, a really brief summary of where we've been so far in Revelation. And if you've been here for a while but, uh, you know, forgot over Christmas break, which is fine, um, I'd like to just summarize a little bit of what we've been doing. So um, in Revelation, uh, the book is structured around this little series of visions and sevens. Just look on the board here real quick. Revelation begins with the vision of Jesus uh, in all his glory. Revelation 2 and 3 uh, are letters to seven historical churches, all right, who are struggling and dealing with stuff in the Roman Empire. Revelation 4 and 5 are a vision of the throne room in heaven, all right? Revelation 6 is six seals, which symbolize historical events. Revelation 7 is this vision of the church being saved. Revelation 8 and 9 are these six trumpets. Uh, we did this last time, Revelation 10 and 11, a vision of the church sent to the nations, um, and so, at least in the way I understand the book, um, these sevens are historical realities, things that are happening either now or will happen in the future. And these visions uh, are God helping us understand and interpret what's going on. He gives us these visions, these pictures uh, to help us understand, man, if we're living in these times or if we're a part of God's people, here's how we should see our lives. Here's how we should, we should walk. And um, we are halfway through the book. Congratulations, you guys have made it. Um, and as we approach the end of the book, uh, we're going to see lots more visions. In fact, uh, Revelation 12, 13, and 14 are these visions about uh, the great story and battle going on in the earth. Okay, uh, In this particular chapter, Revelation 12, uh, is actually um, all of history, uh, world history, from the beginning of time to the end. Uh, summarized in 17 verses. It's like this uh, giant panoramic picture of everything that's ever happened. Um, and uh, there's some, there are going to be a lot of benefits to seeing this big picture. In fact, uh, most of our time in the scriptures will be talking about how this vision of the whole world and the big story God's telling uh, should influence our stories and how we see our lives. Uh, but there is a cost to having a really big picture. Um, consider a panoramic photo. Uh, panoramic photo, and I, I don't know much about photography here, so don't, you know, if I'm stupid, correct me, but uh, it's, a, it's a photo where you take a very long, uh, it's a rectangular photo where you get a really large uh, scope. Um, it used to cost thousands of dollars of equipment and expertise, and now any idiot like me with an iPhone can do it, you know. Uh, but anyways, uh, over Thanksgiving great break, I caught this great uh, panoramic photo, you know, I just pushed the button and scrolled, right, um, of a sunset, and it was breathtaking. I got the entire uh, horizon. Um, but because it was a panoramic photo, or maybe because of my lack of skill, I'm not sure, um, the, uh, the edges were a little distorted. Uh, things weren't in uh, proportion. There were, some, there were some spatial issues. Like if you, you, it, wasn't, it was an accurate picture, but things just kind of got jammed together at the edges. Um, and anytime we try to capture a whole lot in a small space, that kind of jamming effect is gonna happen. If you know nothing about photography, consider this example, okay? You walk up to me and you say, Lewin, uh, I'm leaving in 30 seconds and I'm never coming back. I need you to tell me how to live the Christian life in the next 30 seconds, go, okay? I'd probably say, remember the gospel, read your Bible, do what it says, pray a lot, trust Jesus, live on mission, okay, bye. That was 15 seconds, okay, good, all right? Uh, and and that, I think that's okay for 15 seconds, right? But there's a lot you could misinterpret. There's a lot of things jam-packed together, a lot of perspectives you don't get. And uh, all that is significant because in Revelation 12, 
uh, in this particular prophetic genre that's going to summarize human history in 17 verses, really uh, just in six verses we'll see. Um, there are some things that are jammed together. There are some images that are blurred. There are some things that are a little hard to understand. I'll give you all an example, um, and then we'll jump into the scripture. So look at verse 5, okay? Look at verse 5. All right, there's this woman in the passage. We'll see this woman is the church, all right? And uh, the one clear reference that we're, we know who this person is, in verse 5, she gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, okay? That is very clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 19, 15, he is the one who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. In Revelations 2 and 3, over and over again, we talk about Jesus' rule over the nations, okay? That's Jesus, okay? But notice what it says about Jesus. She gives birth to a male child, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, uh, that is a description of the ascension of Jesus. After he died, he rose from the grave, and then the disciples see him ascend into heaven, and he sits at God's right hand, and he's been there since. Okay, So just notice what John does. John jams the entire life, death, and resurrection of Jesus into this one little phrase, that he was called up to God in his throne. All right, That's, that's what I'm going to call, as we go through this lesson, uh, the panoramic effect. We're going to see it all over the place. Uh, the church at the beginning of the passage is this woman we'll see. At the end of the passage, the church is the woman's offspring. Um, we'll see that uh, Satan is defeated once before time begins and again uh, at the cross of Jesus. All right. Now, uh, all that to say, okay, all that to say is I want you to understand, first, just how this is happening, but second, the point of this passage, all right, is not that each figure is identified with a specific thing or that we have a really clear timeline of how things happen. The point is for you to get the big picture, for you to see this breathtaking panoramic vision of what God is doing in history, okay? Uh, so let's hear uh, the Lord's story and all of our stories in 17 verses. Here we go. Revelation 12, we will read uh, from verse 1 all the way to verse 17. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and seven horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, for she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb 
and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we approach this wonderful and uh, difficult passage, we just pray uh, that you would give us eyes to see not just the, this the story you're telling in history, but also our place in it. We pray that uh, you would give us the uh, just an awareness of our enemy and a, an ability to conquer. Uh, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Lou Holtz, former coach, South Carolina football team, uh, very wisely has said that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. I think that's really, uh, really helpful because I think one of the most significant things about each of us is not the things that happen to us, but how we make meaning out of the things that happen to us, how we interpret the things that happen in our lives, um, how you make meaning of the simplest things like getting a really thoughtful Christmas present or getting the flu or how you make meaning out of the most intense things, getting your dream job, moving on in a life stage, losing a loved one. How you, how you make meaning out of the things that happen, uh, those will be the largest factors in whether you live a life of joy and purpose or not. Um, does me getting the flu after Christmas or breaking my Apple Watch after having it for five days mean anything? Um, does resisting the urge to fall into sin, is that just something you're doing by yourself in isolation? Or does that mean something? Is it, is it a part of a bigger story? Um, and we all long, especially in our particular generation, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We want those questions, does this matter, to be answered with a yes. And uh, Revelation 12 tells us that our little stories, uh, whether they are currently quite pleasant or quite rough, they are a part of this bigger story. John uh, is, remember, John has written this uh, book to seven struggling churches. There are these churches in the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, there are various degrees of struggle. Some of them have false teachers. Some of them are really struggling. Some of them are being persecuted by the government. Some of them are uh, about to walk away from Jesus. And John is giving them this vision of the great story God is telling so they can see their place in it, so they can take it up. So uh, what we're going to see um, is that we see the big panoramic picture of everything, of all of history in verses 1 to 6. And then John will zoom in on a part of that story in 7 to 17. So let's, let's try to see the story and see ourselves as a part of this story. So first, verses 1 through 6 show us that the great story is the church's victory through the Son. 
The church's victory through the Son. Verse 1, we see a great sign appear in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Uh, as we interpret this passage and see it, we'll see the woman is the church. Let me give you a couple of reasons that we understand this woman uh, as the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, later in this book, in Revelation 19, we'll see that the church is the bride of Christ. She is, she'll be feminine in relationship to Jesus. Okay. Second, uh, throughout this book, Jesus speaks of clothing his people uh, in great garments, giving them uh, crowns as reward and making them rulers of the universe. And we see uh, this lady appear. And the moon is under her feet, meaning she's ruling over the cosmos. And her head is a crown of 12 stars. She's clothed, like Christ, with the sun. This is a picture of the church, not as she is now, but as she will be, uh, glorious, ruling over the earth. Uh, If you have more questions about that, we can ask after the lesson's over. But this woman, uh, in verse 2, we see that she is travailing in childbirth. All right, um... She is struggling. She's in pain. And she's trying to give birth to the one in verse 4, or sorry, verse 5 we see, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, again, this is the, the panoramic effect, okay? Things are a little jammed together. I think what we see here all right, is a picture of the Old Testament people of God, all right, trying to bring about all of God's promises in the Messiah. There are all these promises in the Old Testament about how God will bring a ruler, all right, through his people. Right, who'll make everything right. But over and over again, if you read your Old Testament, you see it is not a pretty picture. Oftentimes the church is in trial, they're being persecuted, they're enslaved, or they're blowing it in sin. And so we have a picture here, again, jammed together, all right, of the church. But just imagine, okay, you're a member of First Baptist Pergamum, all right, one of those churches back in uh, uh, Revelation 2, all right. And you've got false teachers uh, in your church, all right? The government has just killed one of your founding church members, all right? And you read your Old Testament, and all you can read, all right, are God's people again and again and again disobeying, all right? And you get to Revelation 12, and you see that what God says about the church, all right, is in fact, she is a beautiful, glorious, ruling over the world woman, the bride of Christ, I think uh, the point there is that things aren't always as they seem. The church might be a little ugly and a little despised and definitely not ruling the world right now. But in the big picture, right, in the panoramic photo, that's who she really is. Victorious, glorious, ruling. All right. But notice uh, this victorious church in this present age. All right, is embattled and endangered. Next, we see another sign in verse 3. A great red dragon with seven heads and seven horns, on his head seven diadems. Um, In verse 9, we learn this great dragon is none other than Satan himself, the devil, the serpent, the deceiver of the whole world. But look at his description here. Uh, The first thing we see about his description is that he's trying to imitate Christ. The devil's great at propaganda, okay? Look at him. He's got uh, seven heads, ten horns on his head, seven diadems. He's trying to appear like the lamb appears in Revelation 5 with his seven horns. He's trying to take uh, the diadems that belong only to Jesus. He's trying to appear like Christ, like he really rules. But he's grotesque. Notice that his heads and horns don't match up. He's got seven heads and ten horns. 
It looks a little crazy. He's out of step with God's purposes. Okay? Um, and we'll see in a, mi- a minute that this dragon's, actually, we'll, we'll see right now, this dragon's purpose, okay, is to destroy the male child that the woman is giving birth to. He wants to destroy the Messiah. He wants to, he hates God and hates everything that looks like God. And he, he knows that God's going to bring good things through this ruler. So he, he wants to destroy him. That's his mission. So part two of our great story, all right? There's a twisted, powerful, horrible, evil force whose one purpose is to make war on and destroy the church. We see this in the Bible playing out from beginning to end. The Garden of Eden, where everything was perfect and great. First thing that happens after creation is a serpent shows up and tries to destroy and succeeds in destroying Adam and Eve. We see in the whole Old Testament, God's people are either being killed and enslaved by foreign evil powers, right? Or they are embracing foreign evil pagan powers. We see today in our world horrors. We feel seemingly unfightable temptations in our own hearts. We have those depressing, anxious thoughts that will not go away. What is happening here is the dragon is making war upon the saints. It has meaning. There's a story. Finally, we see that the dragon's war fails. The child is born, and he is caught up to God and his throne. Uh, He reigns and rules. Now, again, uh, John does not lay out all the details here, right? We read in the rest of the Bible, how does Jesus get caught up to God's throne? Well, first, he lives a perfect life in the place of sinners. Then he dies on the cross bearing their sin. He, he takes the wrath of God. He submits himself to, to God's will, right? And then he rises again from the grave. Um, but part three of this great story, all right, is that God's bride, the church, gets all of her victory and all of her glory through the Son, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through uh, to put it in a in terms of a Disney movie, okay? Jesus is the hero who slays the dragon, and makes the princess a queen. Um, in fact, uh, I'd say the reason we have so many movies with that basic plot line is that that they're just little whispers, right, of the real story being told. So, uh, the story of the universe, the reason there is a created world, the reason we have history. All right. The whole purpose is, is for God to give his people victory through Jesus. <clears throat> when you turn on the news, what is really happening behind all of the happenings in the world is God calling to himself a people, protecting them in this present age, giving them victory, leading them to glory. Um, when you lose your job or go on an amazing vacation, That is a small part of this great story of God giving his people over victory over the dragon. What happens in your community group when you open the Bible and seek to obey it is more significant in terms of history than when world leaders meet. Do you understand that? What is really going on in the world is the story of the church. Nations rise and fall. As C.S. Lewis said, their lives are to our lives as those of a gnat. Right? History is being played out in this local church more than anywhere else, right? So live in light of that story. Um, Do not believe that you're the lie that your life is meaningless unless you're living the American dream. That's a lie that's really prevalent in our age, right? 
Unless you get everything the American dream promises, your life is meaningless. No, your life is a part of the story. And in fact, um, if you belong to Jesus, this passage says that wherever you are now, your life is heading towards glory and victory. One day, right, you will be clothed in splendor, ruling over the cosmos, free if you endure. But here's another application, all right? And I, I really want you to hear this. Okay, let me, uh, here's an application that I think will really change your relationship to your church, okay? The church ultimately is beautiful. And you were called in your present life to relate to your local church as if she was beautiful, maybe in spite of what she's like now. I'll put it this way, okay? The church in this present age is in middle school, okay? Um, <laughs> Now, listen, I'm a pastor, all right? I love this church. I was converted to this church. I think we have a great church, okay? But uh, if anyone knows that this church is broken and dysfunctional, it's me, all right? And I'm the chief of sinners in that regard, all right? Um, if we're dysfunctional, that's not primarily on me, okay? Um, but anyone who is in a relationship with a local church for any length of time, all right, eventually you realize, oh, my gosh, like, these people really are dysfunctional sinners, and we're really not doing a lot of things we should be doing, right? And most people's temptation when that happens is to say, all right, I'm going to the next church, all right? I think that's very uh, unhelpful for your life, okay? But let me, let me just, uh, let me just uh, talk about why the church is in middle school, okay? Think about middle school, okay? Everyone had different middle school experiences, okay? But for most people, it is a time of great awkwardness, gangliness, uh, sin comes out in your life in tangible ways for the first time. You're either a bully or you're getting bullied, okay? Uh, some of us in here were the mean girls, okay? Some of us here were persecuted by the mean girls, okay? All of us look back at our middle school photos and say, Mom, put that away, you know? <laughs> like, come on, okay? Um, and I used to be the middle school pastor at this church, and um, one of my coolest experiences has been watching middle schoolers grow up. When you first meet a middle schooler, you're like, I don't know if there is hope. Like, I, like you know, like I'm not, I, I'm not sure, you know? And uh, this is crazy. Uh, this is a guy I knew. Uh, I was actually a, a middle school coach for a while. But the other day, um, this was maybe six months ago, this giant, muscular, man bun toting guy runs up to me at the church. like, Leland, what's up, man? And I'm like, hey, listen, thanks for the greeting, but who are you, you know? And uh, he was a former middle schooler of mine. And he's grown up. He loves the Lord. And I just, I just tell you what, it's crazy to watch him grow up. But you have to stick with him, right? to see that transformation. And uh, there's a day coming when God's people will be glorious and beautiful and full-grown and ruling over the earth. That day is not here yet. We're in process. You're going to be frustrated if you're really a part of community. And you're called, I think, from this passage to see yourself as a part of this story, to see yourself as a part of loving the church so that she can become like this. See her through that lens. Stick with your local church. Okay? That's the great story. The church gets victory and glory over the dragon through the sun. It's a beautiful story, one in which God calls you to participate in. Okay? But just in case you think that this story will be like a Disney story or even worse, a romantic comedy, all right? uh, John spends the next 11 verses letting us know this story is actually a lot more like a horrible World War II movie. He takes... Uh, a little portion of this picture and reminds us that the great story is a great battle. Maybe you're wondering, Leland, how do I know John is zooming in here? Are, are you making that up? Uh, just look at verse 4, okay? 
Verse 4 says, the, the dragon's tail sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to the earth. Okay? Uh, we'll see in verses 8 and 9 that the great dragon and his angels all right, are thrown down to the earth. Uh, actually, in the original language, that's the same word for sweeping down and throwing down. So you have a picture here of, the, of, of Satan taking out a third of the angels in heaven with him. All right, when he's cast out of heaven. Again, a little panoramic effect there, a little blended, okay? But I think the idea here uh, is that John is zooming in on the war that is the great part of this story. The great story is a great battle, one in which the dragon has lost and is losing, but like a suicide bomber, he will take out as many people as possible with him. Okay, so again, uh, there are some images that are jammed together here. This is kind of a panoramic picture, okay? Uh, It appears first in verses uh, 7 through 9 that first there is a battle between Satan and Michael before the world begins. All right, first we see him thrown out of heaven before creation begins. Notice, uh, I think this happens before creation because in verse 9 it says the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, right? Who appeared in the Garden of Eden to tempt Adam and Eve? A serpent, right? So the idea, this, this, is ha- this happened, all right? Satan was defeated by Michael and his angels before creation began, all right? Um, but then, okay, uh, we see in verse 10, again, blended together, it appears now we see this Satan losing ultimately in the cross of Jesus. Look at what's said in verse 10 after the dragon's thrown down. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accusers of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So notice, it appears here, when does the salvation and power and kingdom of our God come? They come in Jesus, the New Testament tells us. When does the authority of his Christ come? They come in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. How do God's people conquer? In verse 11, they conquer by the blood of the Lamb. John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, right, who takes away the sin of the world. That the Lamb is the one who died in the place of God's people. But notice here, and this is, uh, I think, something very significant and important, right? The cross of Jesus, uh, the, de- the perfect life, sinless death, him bearing our sins in his body on the tree, right? That, that work of Christ, okay, that is the ultimate decisive victory of God over the powers of evil. Uh, from our uh, typically American indiv- individualistic perspectives, typically we think about uh, the cross is mostly about me getting forgiveness of sins, Right? And that, that's, that's a good thing because we want to we want to take we want to appropriate it by faith. We want to trust personally in Jesus. All right, but the cross is much more than that. Uh, God defeats the powers of evil in this present age through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the hero slaying the dragon. This is the death blow. And uh, just for a second, behold the wonder and wisdom of God. The place in world history that looked most like defeat, right? One man, all alone, mocked, scorned, 
left by all his followers, bearing the wrath of God, right? There's no place more lonely, more forsaken, right? More defeated. The one place in the world that looked like defeat was God's ultimate victory over the powers of darkness. The cross is the one place you can find victory and one place, the one place you can find a model for living a victorious life. So the dragon is defeated before creation. He's defeated at the cross. But before his final defeat, which we'll see in Revelation 19 and 20, we see that the dragon fights until the end. He knows he's been beaten. He knows he's losing the war but he wants to destroy as many people as possible. In World War II, all right, um, when the Allies had become winning, or had begun to win and sweep across Europe, all right, the German army surrendered, all right, but the Nazis, the SS troops, they fought to the end. They gave rifles to little boys. They used people as human shields, right? The evilest of people do not care the war's lost. They fight to the end. That's the dragon's attitude. In verse 13, when he saw that he'd been thrown down, in other words, when he saw that Jesus' death had defeated him, okay, he first pursues the church. And we'll see verses 14 through 16, this, this great kind of mythological action movie picture of, of God helping and delivering the church from the dragon. All right, you can uh, enjoy that on your own. Um, but notice, after the dragon can't get the church or the woman, verse 17 says he becomes furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Again, that panoramic effect, they're blended together, okay? First, the woman's the church, right? Big picture, all right? But also, the church living in the present age, all right, uh, is, the church's off is the woman's offspring, all right? That makes sense, right? Why are you a Christian, all right? Because somebody in the body of Christ, right, in the church, all right, um, spiritually, helped bring you into the world. They helped give you birth. They preached the gospel to you, right? You were a product, whether you like it or not, of the church, the church's witness, okay? But the point here, all right, is the dragon has lost the battle, but he is still going to whatever, however he can, kill, persecute, tempt, and destroy every single person on the earth who keeps God's commandments and loves the testimony of Jesus. Next, next week, we'll see how the dragon wages the war, okay? But... Here's something I want you to take into life, all right? If the great story of history is a great battle, all right, that means that your life, if in fact it is a part of this story, is going to be a series of battles. Most of us expect that our lives will be kind of like an episode of The Office, okay, or like a romantic comedy, all right? Things will just turn out okay. And the reality, all right, the reality is that our lives are going to be much more like a war movie, Right? There will be battles in our lives. Um, and even in the comforts of 21st century America, you've experienced this in your walk with the Lord, right? You finally get a day off. You get a day to rest. You get a, man, my time, you know? And all of a sudden, that day comes, and you are grievously tempted and maybe lonely or depressed. You get to that new stage of life or career you've been longing for. You think you're going to find life there, and you get there. And there's some good stuff there, but there's just different battles, and the reason, is, the reason that's how life works is not just because the world is tough, but because you have an enemy who wants to destroy you. 
There's an evil power in the world, one that many of us live ignoring, right, that wants nothing more than to destroy your faith. And he's brilliant and brutal in his tactics. Uh, Adolf Hitler, when World War II began and he invaded Poland and then systematically murdered all of the uh, clergymen and all of the rulers and all of the Jews in Poland, he literally lined them up and murdered them and began to enslave the Polish population. And his generals were asking him why he was being so brutal. Here's what he said. You can't fight a war with Salvation Army tactics. Salvation Army is a, uh, a charity organization. It's a pretty horrible attitude, but that's the devil's attitude. He will do whatever it takes. His tactics are brutal and brilliant. How does the dragon work? This passage says in two places, uh, first in, uh, mostly in verse 9 and verse um, sorry, 11. I'm sorry, verse 9 and 10, that he's a, he's a deceiver and an accuser. Uh, what the devil does is he, he tempts you and leads you and deceives you into sin. And then when you've gone into sin, he accuses you with God's law. He twists scripture. Russell Moore put this very uh, powerfully. He said that there is no one more pro-choice than the devil when a woman walks into an abortion clinic and no one more pro-life after she walks out. The idea there is that the devil tempts these women into sin. He makes them think, well, it's okay. And the moment they do it, he pours out accusation and condemnation and guilt and tries to convince them that God will not love them. And you guys see that playing out in your life, right? You see sin looking okay. You see boundaries blurring. But you cross them, and all of a sudden, all you can sense is God does not love me. He's not going to help me. It's over, right? That is the dragon. If your life is a part of this story, you should expect your life to be full of battles and struggles, even if those battles are as mundane as getting out of bed early enough to spend time with Jesus or keeping your heart content in a stage of life you don't like. You should expect that opportunities for ministering to others will be opposed. You might start leading a small group and then have a panic attack the next week for no reason. Guys, that's the devil trying to destroy your life. Those things happen. You should expect that. But, and I'm, I'm so intense on that because I think it's very easy to willfully ignore the presence of evil in our lives. But this passage says again and again and again that the devil is a defeated enemy. Notice uh, back in verse 2, in verse 1, the woman is a great sign. Sorry, uh, verse 3, the devil's just another sign, right? It says in uh, verse 8, the devil was defeated. The uh, Greek behind that word is he was not strong. The devil's not strong. Four or five times in this passage, it says the devil has been cast down. He does not have authority. We'll see the key to conquering in verse 11. How does a Christian conquer the enemy? How do they take part in this story in battle? Verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They have loved their lives. They have loved not their lives even unto death. First and foremost, you conquer, you have victory over the dragon through the blood of Jesus, through looking to him, through trusting him, through taking his life by faith, through relying upon him to save you. Again, the devil is a deceiver and an accuser. And when you trust in the blood of Jesus alone to save you, there is no, there is no condemnation in Christ. You conquer the schemes of the devil simply by resting upon Jesus alone. 
Maybe you're here this morning, you're just checking out this whole church thing, and you're a moral person, you think you're a nice, nice guy or whatever, but you've never gotten to a place, right, where you personally see yourself as a sinner in need of rescue, and you personally have rested upon Jesus Christ, rested upon his life and death to save you. And what the Bible says about you right now is that you have been deceived. And there is one way to escape, to have victory, and that is by resting upon and trusting the blood of Jesus. And as you trust Jesus, we see two more things to conquer. First, it says they've, they've conquered him in verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb, and then by the word of their testimony, for they love their lives, not even unto death. That you conquer the evil one, that you have victory over the dragon, when you speak about Jesus, the testimony of Christians, and the public proclamation of the gospel, you speaking about how God's worked in your life to your unbelieving co-worker, right? Uh, you cultivating relationships with unbelievers so that you can share the gospel, you speaking about Christ, proclaiming him, being faithful to him, those things take part in the great war that is going on through history. The battle lines move one step forward when you are faithful to speak about Jesus. But I think there's an attitude you have to have to begin that. Notice uh, how, do these, how do these Christians witness and conquer? Verse 11, it says, They loved not their lives even unto death. I think quite literally for a church living in 100 AD in the Roman Empire, that means you can be faithful to Jesus as long as you're willing to be killed by Rome. Um, but I think more than just a willingness to physically die, all right, there is a heart posture that says, what I love most is Christ, right? I don't love my life the most. I don't love my pleasures and comforts and my personal security and not being awkward at work or, and, not like, and not having my way, okay? I don't love those things the most. I love Christ the most. He controls me, right? Just check your heart this morning. I think maybe one of the biggest issues in my life is what I love the most, whether it's Jesus or my personal dreams for my life and my comfort. Consider this for a second. What, what would you do, all right? Now, there's not, a, there's not a verse in the Bible that says it's okay, but what do we do if I, if I read a verse in the Bible that said, the only way for you to be a faithful Christian was to leave Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, move to a terrible, dangerous country, and live at the poverty level alone for the rest of your life for the gospel. That's the only way to be faithful to God. The one way, all right? What do you do? I think that, uh, I think that question, and I'm, I don't think God's calling you that necessarily, but I think that question helps you understand what you really love. Pray that God would give you a controlling and overcoming love for Jesus. That will help you witness to him. Just, but consider, the, consider the glory of this, okay? Every time, all right, you choose to not love your life in this world, but to love Christ. Every time you, you, you with, you know, butterflies in your stomach, just say something. You ask a question about where someone else is at spiritually, or you invite somebody to come to church with you. You take that kind of step with them, okay? Every time you do something that looks like bearing witness to Jesus or testifying to him, you take part in the most important story in history. You become a part of that cosmic battle. The battle lines move one step forward with every unnoticed prayer for lost people, right? With every faithful word, every time you try to get better at speaking about Jesus, every time you take part in the story 
that will be told forever. It is worth whatever it costs. So for those of you guys who uh, aren't big college football fans, there is a national championship game coming on uh, tomorrow night at 8 p.m. I'll just admit I'll probably be in bed by halftime. Uh, it's okay. Uh, but I wasn't always dad of new baby. Uh, two years ago, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, taking a Greek class uh, during the national championship. And uh, I went to uh, a halftime party, or sorry, a, a, a national championship party, okay, to watch the game. It was uh, Alabama and Clemson's rematch. All right, Alabama had won the year before. It was a rematch. And 10.30 rolls around, and it's halftime, and I have an exam the next day. And so because I'm lame, I drove home and went to bed, okay? I woke up the next day, though, uh, to news not just that Clemson had won, but they had won in one of the most epic national championship games in football history. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember it, but uh, anyways, I, was, uh, I hated myself a little bit. But uh, over breakfast, all right, I searched on YouTube for the last 15 minutes of the game and watched it. And it, I mean, it was, it was epic. You guys should go back and watch it if you want to get excited for the game, okay? Uh, at one point in time, there was a minute and 30 seconds left. Clemson on the 50-yard line, down by six, and they just take the ball and drive it down the field to victory. It was, it was incredible. But, but my experience at 6.30 a.m. over oatmeal watching that game was very different from everyone else's experience the night before, right? Uh, you, you guys, if you don't like football, maybe you've seen a very uh, intense movie where you're literally like, oh, you know, your blood pressure's going up, like your heart rate goes up, like every pass, every, you know, like you're just, oh, you're into it, right? Um, and I was just sitting there just enjoying it. Just, because I, I, I know they're gonna win. I know the end. And uh, there's some confidence. I know that every catch or every miss is on the way to certain victory. And there's a sense that this big picture in Revelation 12 is meant to give us this sense that whatever is going on right now in our present circumstances is a step towards certain victory. If your life feels like a linebacker just tackled you in the face and broke your nose, okay, that is a step towards victory. If you feel like you're on the bench, you're on the winning team. Victory is coming. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we do ask um, that you would give us the grace by the Spirit uh, to see ourselves in the story you're telling. I just pray you'd bring meaning to the littlest parts of our lives, that you'd bring a new uh, desire to proclaim uh, and testify to Jesus. I pray in his name.